0: The Jobcast, escaping my sad book for a little bit, with Ian Morrison, Haratina Mugishanu, Sam Leskey, Jake starbert Morgan, Fiona Porter, Marianne Rashid, Alice Humpage, and Michael Wright. The Jobcast, March 2020 edition. Hello and welcome back to the Jobcast. I'm Jake, and joining me in the studio today are Fiona and Marianne.
1: Hello. Hi!
0: In the show this time, we have Michael Wright interviewing Rebecca Bowler about galaxies in the early universe, and as ever, Ian Morrison, Haretina Mogashanu and Sam Lesky are going to take a look at what's happening in the March night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Alice with this month's news.
2: Thanks, Jake. In the news this month, telescopes detect the biggest explosion since the Big Bang in the Atheicus supercluster. The InSight lander detects 174 quakes and a second planet is found around our closest star, Proxima Centauri. First, a massive explosion from the Atheicus Galaxy, 390 million light-years away, has been detected. This is the biggest eruption in the observable universe since the Big Bang, five times as large as the previous record holder. It was caused by a jet of radio emission shooting from a supermassive black hole. The first signs of the explosion came in 2016, when the supercluster was found to have a curved edge. This was possibly the wall of a cavity created by jets of hot gas being expelled from the black hole, but the evidence at the time wasn't enough to confirm what was a very extreme result. Those first observations were made with the Chandra X-ray telescope, but a combination of different telescopes were required to find out more about the strange galaxy. These latest results were made by using the previous Chandra data, archive data from the giant meter wave telescope as well as new observations with the XNM-Newton to confirm the previous observations, and further observations in the radio with the Wide Field Array. This combination confirmed the previous theories of the cavity caused by a supermassive jet, since the radio data showed the curved wall is bordering an area filled with radio emission, as a result of our electrons moving nearly the speed of light. Next, NASA's InSight Lander has detected Marsquakes, proving that Mars has significant seismic activity. InSight has detected 174 of these, and multiple of them are magnitudes 3 or 4, large enough to be felt by humans. The InSight landed on the Red Planet on the 26th of November 2018, in the area called Elysium Planitia. Its main goal is to better understand the internal and thermal structure and the composition of Mars. The magnitude 3 and 4 quakes were strong enough to allow their origins to be traced back to an area called Kerberos Fossi, about 1,000 miles away. This region has faults, volcanic flows, and liquid water channels. The seismic activity on Mars is not the same as it is on Earth, since there are no tectonic plates. However, there will be cooling and contraction from the magma beneath the surface. Therefore, the activity is more like what we see away from the tectonic plate boundaries, a bit like a the UK. Detecting seismic events tells us more than whether the interior of Mars is active. It will also tell us about the interior of the planet, based on how the waves propagate, and about the atmosphere with a detection of the magnetic field on Mars. Finally, a second planet has been found orbiting our closest star, Proxima Centauri. The newly discovered Proxima C is a super-Earth, a planet which is more massive than the Earth, but less massive than the Earth giants. It was detected by the radial velocity method, where changes in the position of the star are measured to look for the gravitational impact of planets. Even though it's our closest star at 4.2 light-years away, it would still take tens of thousands of years to reach with current rockets. However, the discovery is significant for planet formation models, because it seems to have formed further away from the star than expected for a super-Earth.
3: Thanks for that, Alice. Now, Mike interviews Rebecca Bowler about galaxies in the early universe.
4: Hello, joining me in the studio this week is Dr. Rebecca Bowler. Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself?
5: Oh, hi there. So, my name is Rebecca Bowler, and I am an astrophysicist at the University of Oxford, where I'm studying how galaxies form in the early universe.
1: Okay, so give a
4: brief overview then of what you're doing about uh, galaxy formation.
5: So what we want to know is how galaxies form after the Big Bang. So after the Big Bang, the universe was really in chaos. There was just this kind of soup of particles. But we know today that we have all these really interesting structures. We have galaxies, we have planets, we have us. And so what I'm trying to do is connect those two things. I'm trying to work out how the super particles cooled and became kind of atoms that we, we understand today and uh, those eventually formed stars and galaxies, and it's those stars and galaxies that I'm trying to observe. So I use telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope and eventually the James Webb Space Telescope to observe these very distant galaxies.
4: I suppose, firstly then, you mentioned the Hubble Space Telescope. How come that's what you're using? What about it? it makes it good for that?
5: So Hubble is a fantastic instrument for many different reasons. Firstly, it's in space, So that means it's above our atmosphere. And our atmosphere causes a lot of problems for astronomers. It means that the images we have are not sharp enough for a lot of uh, the science questions we want to answer. It also means that certain wavelengths of light are blocked. So, for example, ultraviolet light from the sun is blocked by our atmosphere. Some ultraviolet light, I should say, which is actually quite good for us uh, as humans living on the surface of the Earth. But it's bad for astronomers because we can't look at certain parts of the spectrum that we're interested in that's a few reasons why. So it's above the atmosphere, so we get clearer images, and it allows us to look at the full uh, colours of galaxies that we're interested in.
4: So that's an interesting point that we should talk about. You mentioned then the colours of galaxies. Yeah. Why is that the important thing you're looking at? What is it that's about the colour of a galaxy?
5: Yeah, so that's a great question. So the galaxies I'm looking at are extremely distant objects. So... Because of the expansion of the universe and because the speed of light is constant, astronomers kind of use images of the sky like time machines. So if you imagine the galaxy is very, very far away, the light has traveled a very long way to get to us. Uh, and on its journey, several things have happened. So the first thing is it's made it very, very, very faint. So the, the galaxy is very hard to actually detect and see and um, because it's so far away and the light has, has been spread out on its journey. The other thing that's happened is it's become redder. So as the universe expands and the light travels through the universe, its light is, is stretched and it's made redder. So this is what we call redshift. So what I'm looking at is extremely high redshift galaxies because they're extremely distant. So this means that we need very specific observations to find them. We can't just look in the optical regime, like the wavelengths we can see with our eye. What we need is redder. We need to see redder light to detect these distant galaxies. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why the Hubble Space Telescope is so powerful. It's above the atmosphere and it's sensitive to this redder light that we care about.
4: That's the why of this then. What sort of things have you been finding out so far about these early galaxies?
5: So the observations are very challenging of these sources and so quite a lot of my effort actually goes into finding them in the first place. So uh, I spend most of my time searching for these distant objects in imaging data. Once we've found them, though, there are quite a lot of interesting things we know about them. So the first thing is that they are very young, kind of turbulent systems. So they're not galaxies like the Milky Way. They're not like nice spiral galaxies. They're really chaotic, irregular objects because they're so young. They're just, they're just the first galaxies that have formed in the universe. So, so we know that they are kind of young, bright objects forming a lot of stars. We also know that they have a very irregular morphology, so they're not spirals and they're not ellipticals, like you might see uh, more locally. They're kind of irregular objects. And we also know that they have a very different chemical composition to galaxies that we're more familiar with, and that's because they're formed out of pristine gas. So they're formed out of gas that has really, nothing has happened to it yet. It's just been formed after the Big Bang, and this is the first thing that's happened to it. It's formed into a star and a galaxy. So this means that its chemical composition is very pure. It's essentially, astronomers call it low-metallicity. It means that there's not many heavy, interesting elements. There's no carbon, there's no iron. It's just a very um, pristine system.
4: So you've explained why it was pristine from the point of view of the galaxy evolving, but Mm. how do you actually measure that?
5: So to measure this chemical composition of these early galaxies, what we really need is a spectrum. So a spectrum is essentially you split up the light, just like if you look at a prism, you split up the white light into all of its different colours. And on this kind of uh, spectrum of colours, you see these characteristic dark patches and light patches. And these are what we call emission and absorption lines. And these are essentially fingerprints of the elements that are present in the galaxy. So, for example, if you look at our sun, you see these dark absorption lines, and this tells you that there are certain elements in its atmosphere, uh, like calcium, for example. There are atoms of calcium in the atmosphere. And we can do the exactly same thing at a much, much greater distance than our sun. So looking at these galaxies, spreading their light out and looking at these fingerprints of different elements. And what we see is a much lower proportion of kind of interesting, heavy elements that make up the Earth.
4: Okay, so we're finding out a few things about these. Is there anything else you found out other than sort of the composition and general shape?
5: Yes, so my specialty is looking at kind of extreme galaxies, at early times in, in galaxy formation. So what I'm especially interested in is kind of monster galaxies that have formed in the early universe. So we look to galaxy formation and evolution simulations for clues into how galaxies formed, because we don't have that much information about this time from observations. And by comparing observations and simulations, we found quite a lot of differences, and this is really interesting. And in particular, my research focuses on the brightest galaxies and the the galaxies that are forming the most stars. And these are things that are not predicted at all by simulations, but we're finding them. So this is a really interesting test of what we know about the physics that's happening in the early universe. We can directly compare uh, the observations in theory, and we see that there's a discrepancy.
4: What discrepancy are you finding?
5: So basically, we found more galaxies than we were expecting, uh, which is a nice position to be in, actually, uh, because sometimes you look for something and you don't see anything, but this time we actually found too many. But this this is really interesting, because it means that something is wrong with how we are simulating galaxies. It means that something is wrong in the way that we are making the computer form stars, basically. It can't be right, because simulation said there shouldn't be any of these very, very large galaxies, but we found about 20 of them.
4: So, difference between none and 20 that you've already found. That does sound rather severe, that difference. Yes. So, are there any attempts then to try and solve this discrepancy?
5: So this is something I'm really interested in. And there's several um, interesting possibilities that could be causing this difference between the simulations and the observations. So one of them could be in the way we treat dust. So I'm not talking about dust that you find in your house. I'm talking about cosmic dust. I'm also not talking about the cosmic dust that's in the Northern Lights trilogy that you might have seen on TV. I'm talking about uh, the dust we see in galaxies. So if you look at the Milky Way, you see these dark patches. These are due to kind of dust lanes in the Milky Way. So essentially what dust does is it hides stars. If you're able to see through this dust in the Milky Way, you would see way more stars than you can see just by looking up in the night sky. And we think the same effect could be causing this discrepancy that we find. So essentially we think that the simulations are not putting in the dust quite right. So what that means is they're putting in too much dust and it's hiding these sources. So they are in the simulations, they're just hidden. They're just hidden from view. And if we were to go and rejig the way that this is done in the computer, we could hopefully uh, boost the number of these objects to match what we see in the observations.
4: Is there then sort of other predictions that you could make to try and verify this? Because at the moment, okay, you change the simulations to then match reality, Mm -hmm. but then could you then go on and predict more things for the simulations to see that you don't just keep changing them and changing them and hoping it works.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So it's incredibly important to test lots of different things in the simulations because they are incredibly complicated and sometimes they produce something about the galaxies perfectly, but they completely do not reproduce some, some other property of the galaxy. For example, they might, they might give you the right colour, but then the morphology or the shape is completely wrong. So we have to make sure we're testing these in multiple different ways. So what we can do, actually, is use a new telescope called alma which is atacama large millimeter array to look directly for this dust and that's a really really powerful technique because then we have two separate measurements that we can then go back to the simulations with
4: so how come then alma is able to observe this dust when your other observations weren't really about that
5: yeah so that, so the, most of the observations we currently have of these distant galaxies are looking at the light from stars. So we're looking directly at the light from the young stars in these galaxies. What ALMA does is it looks in a completely different regime. It's It's a radio telescope, effectively. And that means it can look at a completely different frequency range or wavelength range than our current observations. So instead of looking at the starlight, ALMA and other radio telescopes, when pointed at our interesting galaxies, are actually looking at the dust. So they're detecting the emission from this dust which is, um, well, people say it's warm, but what they actually mean by warm dust is about 40 Kelvin. So that is not really that warm. (laughs) Mm. But for astronomers, we say that that's warm. Um, And this warm dust, it radiates, and we're able to pick this up with a radio telescope.
4: Okay, and then so once you pick that dust up, you can compare it with your models, I suppose.
5: Exactly, yeah, exactly.
4: So this brings us on to a point that Keeps coming up almost every interview I have. We look at, um, something in astronomy in one wavelength or in some, with one telescope and then suddenly we say, okay, actually we'll combine that with this one. This time it's, we started with Hubble, combined it with Alma. Are there any other telescopes that you're going to add to the mix or just throw at it to see if they find things? (laughs) Our astronomers
5: always want more data. We never have enough data. That's definitely true. of course, all astronomers at the moment are, are waiting on tender hooks for the James Webb Space Telescope, and that's going to be exceptionally useful for my sort of science. It's actually going to completely revolutionise the study of the first galaxies. And the reason why that's kind of interesting for the galaxies that I'm talking about is because it's kind of in between what we currently have from Hubble and ALMA. So it's giving you infrared wavelengths that are redder than what Hubble can see. And this is going to tell you about the older stars in the galaxy and also a little bit about the dust as well. So it's going to be really powerful at joining these two observations together.
4: So how come it is then so much better? What about it makes it better?
5: So there's several reasons why it's it's so much better. So I spoke about how we want to go to redder wavelengths when we're looking at these distant galaxies because of the redshifting of the light. James Webb is redder than Hubble, so this enables us to look at, firstly, more distant galaxies. And also the galaxies we currently know it enables us to look at different uh, types of stars in that galaxy. Uh, It's also just much bigger than Hubble. (laughs) So Hubble has a mirror that's around two and a half meters in diameter, whereas James Webb is six and a half meters in diameter. So it has a much larger collecting area. Again, we're looking at extremely distant objects. They're very hard to detect. So just having a larger mirror makes a massive difference uh, in this respect. So something that has taken, you know, many days to observe with our current facilities, you can do it in almost minutes, you know, less than an hour with James Webb. So that just makes it incredibly uh, efficient to look at many more of these sources we're interested in.
4: And is there anything in particular you're hoping to find with it?
5: So James Webb is, as I said, it's it goes redder than Hubble and it's also got a larger mirror. So those two things are really helpful. But in fact, the most groundbreaking thing about the James Webb Space Telescope is that it's not just an imaging telescope. It's, it's a really really a spectroscopic machine. So it's going to be doing spectroscopy, so splitting of the light, in the infrared for the first time. So that is, as well as the kind of other things I said, it's the spectroscopy that's going to be the most groundbreaking for many different parts of astronomy. And in particular, in these very distant galaxies, what it's going to enable us to do is to make very good estimates of the chemical composition. So I said we already knew a little bit about this, but that's only from a very limited, low-signal-to-noise a limited wavelength range we've had available to us before from the ground-based telescopes or from Hubble. James Webb, it gives you a wavelength range which has got a lot more information in it. So it's going to tell you a lot more about the chemical composition. Uh, Absolutely, that's going to be pinned down to much greater precision. But it's also going to enable us to look at things like are there active black holes in these sources or not? So this has been quite um, an interesting debate in the field recently, actually whether some of the properties of these sources can be explained if they are like active black nuclei, like if they have black holes at their centre. And it's not something we can currently constrain, but with James Webb, this, this new wavelength range will be able to look at, essentially you look at the ratio of emission lines, and this tells you whether there's an active black hole there or not. So that's going to be really exciting to see, whether our observations can be completely reinterpreted in this different way.
4: But then if there are active black holes in these galaxies, does that then change the way we think about how early galaxies form? Is that something that's not expected?
5: Yes, absolutely. So we know there must be black holes there, but the only observations of active black holes and and quasars in the early universe have been in very, very luminous, bright objects, So, so objects where the black hole is dominating the whole thing you see. But we know in the kind of normal galaxies that we're detecting, there must be black holes there. We see this locally. We always see a a supermassive black hole in the centre of the galaxy. So we're really confident that they're they're there, but we don't know whether they're going to look the same as they do more locally. So what I mean by that is, what we see in low-redshift galaxies is that the size of the black hole is coupled to the size of the galaxy, essentially, or the mass of the galaxy, how that relationship was formed is not known and perhaps when you go to these very distant objects that hasn't happened. So you could have a massive galaxy with a tiny black hole and you could have a tiny galaxy with a massive black hole uh, and it, maybe it takes time, for example mer- galaxy mergers and so on for the kind of one-to-one relationship we see at low redshift to form. We don't know. And the other question is are these active black holes impacting their galaxy? So there's a lot of talk in people studying galaxy formation about how the tiny black hole at the center of the galaxy impacts the whole object. So for example sometimes they produce very strong jets and these can impact the, the galaxy. We don't know if this is going to be happening in these distant objects and that's a really interesting question we can probe with James Webb.
4: So that's another one for the future
5: then? <laughs> yes well yeah we we can make some headway with these questions already with current data so There are existing observations in the X-ray and in the radio, and typically active black holes give you signatures in the X-ray and the radio. So we're currently looking at the current data available to try and work out if there are active black holes in these sources. But with James Webb, I think it will be easier.
4: (laughs) I suppose that's a good time to wrap up then. Uh, Thank you, Rebecca.
5: Thank you very much.
4: Goodbye. Back to the studio.
6: Thanks for that, Mike. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, who's going to start us off this time? Shall I? May (laughs) as well. (laughs) Why not then? So, I'm not sure if either of you two are fans of QI.
0: Oh, very much so.
6: Yeah. So in that case, you may remember, this is going back some time, an episode where the conversation about how many moons the Earth has came up.
0: Ah, yeah. yeah, that. Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, there, there was a furore around that. They had to walk <laughs> back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
6: It's a very serious subject. Yeah. Very serious indeed. So, while on this occasion I can't report any more proper moons, the Earth does currently have a mini-moon
0: but Stephen Fry has still been docked 10
6: points. (laughs) (laughs) To clarify, this is a really mini-moon. Current estimates put it at being between about 1.9 and 3.5 metres across. So odds of us sending anyone to land on there is, uh, shall we say, minimal. Uh, So for a bit more detail about it, it's currently called the very catchy name of 2020 CD3 and was discovered by... Casper Virchos. apologies to him. I can't. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name.
0: I really thought you were going to say the friendly ghost for a minute.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, nope. Casper uh, Virchos, I think, and Teddy Prime with the Catalina Sky Survey on the 15th of February, and they spotted a new magnitude twentieth object. Oh me, that, that is fine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the magnitude system. Uh, traditionally, it goes from brightest magnitude stars are first magnitude, and sixth are, those that are the faintest ones visible with the naked eye. though so of course, this was back when light pollution was less of a concern. So some of the sixth magnitude stars probably aren't invisible to people in anywhere with much light pollution now. No. So with that in mind, 20th magnitude is really quite impressively faint. Yeah. What aperture telescopes
0: did they get that with?
6: Ooh, good question. So the Catalina Sky Survey is actually intended to look for meteors and asteroids, and they use three telescopes. Uh, So there is a 1.5 metre, a 68 centimetre, and a 1 metre. So they're all pretty small, relatively speaking. Yeah. I mean, granted, I work with radio telescopes, so I might have a slightly warped perspective of what counts as (laughs) small.
0: No, those, those are still classed as small instruments.
6: But yes, they've managed to spot it, regardless of having some quite uh, small telescopes to work with. So that was when it was spotted, but they think it's actually been there for quite a bit longer. Something between a year and three years it's been there already. And what likely happened was that this was just the asteroid fragment which got captured by the Earth's gravity. It's orbiting us, but it's not doing it in the sort of nice elliptical orbit the Moon's doing. Uh, there are some gifs showing what the orbit looks like, and it looks a bit like imagine someone has been coiling up a cable very, very, very badly into a circle. It's a bit <laughs> of a mess. So this isn't a stable orbit, and it won't be there forever. So bef- that's why nobody's getting excited and trying to find out with a cool new name for it. You know? Oh,
0: okay, so this is an elliptical orbit with some extra funky modes thrown
6: in. Uh, I'll see if I can find an image for you, and um, this will go in with the show notes, so you yes, can I'll get have to make sure we'll link to that. You. We can't have you wondering what on earth this thing is doing. So I found a nice helpful plot of what the orbit looks like, and I think you'll back me up when I say it's a mess.
0: Yeah, see what we're seeing here, gentle listeners, is demonstration of chaos theory. <laughs> so. Yay.
6: As you can see in this diagram, the Moon has a lovely stable orbit, or, you know, stable enough for our concerns.
0: Yeah. But well, this, well, this is a multi-body problem that we're dealing with here.
6: It is, of course, because this thing is small enough that, as well as being affected by the Earth's gravity, and, naturally, the Sun's, is the main gravitational force, uh, we've also got the Moon to worry about. So, you can also see in this diagram what looks to be an entry and an exit path to the orbit. So we know it got here sometime within the past three years, and I think we're expecting it to leave within the next year or so.
0: Well, you say leave, it will be ejected.
6: Ejected, yes. We are done with you. Goodbye. And then it'll go back to the normal life of an asteroid zipping around the inner solar system, from what I'm aware. So, yeah, unfortunately we will bid it goodbye, and we'll probably never be able to spot it again because it's so tiny. <laughs> but eh. Yeah. Nice to have a visitor, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. The real uh, question
0: is, will Stephen Fry try and get his points back? Oh no, of course he's not even hosting anymore, No, it's
6: Sandy Toksig now. Will he
0: try and claim them back retroactively?
6: Maybe. <laughs> maybe, I mean, if you're serious about quizzing, I understand this is the sort of thing which is worth much contention.
0: Yeah, we'll have to wait for a judgement from the QILs. Mm-hmm.
6: So, uh, Mario?
3: I'm going to talk to you a bit about Betelgeuse. So, Betelgeuse is one of the brightest stars in the sky, second brightest is in Orion. But over the last four months, it's been getting fainter. Nobody really knows why. So, now, actually, it's started to brighten again from its dimmest point. So, people have been speculating about this and thinking about why it might be happening. And as far as I'm aware, nobody's really settled
6: on an answer. Or at least not a completely certain one. Yeah.
0: I know there's been some general excitement in the department about this.
6: Mm-hmm. It's the sort of thing which astronomers get very excited about. <laughs> and we did actually talk about this on the previous month's Jodcast.
0: Well, it's it's not always the case that you can see these things changing on human timescales.
6: Oh, definitely not. It's the sort of thing... We have been expecting Beetlejuice to go supernova. Well, it's already happened, but the light from that happening reaching us soon, astronomically speaking, but... Do
0: we know Probably that it's happened yet? Yeah.
6: I think we're fairly certain it has happened. Huh. It's just the people is sufficiently far away. If I, I, mean, I remember right, on the
3: scale of thousands of years before the light's mm-hmm.
2: going to reach it, Yes,
6: it, it's sort of it's soon on an astronomical timescale. I think we expect it within the next hundred thousand years or something like that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> like our no. <all> lifetimes. No. <laughs> Keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, if we've got any immortals hanging around, there could be a very exciting
3: sight. <laughs> it would be really. Like, it's expected to be incredibly
6: bright, like, visible during the day. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember hearing about as bright as the moon? Yeah. I saw that. Not quite a second sun, but still really something. Yeah, so that will be around
0: magnitude minus four.
3: Uh I believe so.
0: Just to put it in context with our discussion of magnitudes earlier.
3: Although I don't think you mentioned earlier that the magnitude scale was negative.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It goes negative for very bright objects. Mm. It's a bit of a fast, but at this point it would be even more of a fast to try and change it into something <laughs> more sensible.
6: Yeah. It's one of those little remnants which astronomy has from long ago. I don't know quite how old the original magnitude system is off the top of my head, but uh, it's
0: pretty old. It'd go back to the 20s or 30s or something like that.
6: Mm-hmm. I know
0: Henrietta Leavitt and Annie Jump Cannon were two of the women that did a lot of work on that.
6: Annie Jump Cannon, my favourite name in astronomy. <laughs>
0: it's a pretty brilliant name.
6: So, uh they're not completely sure how far away Betelgeuse is, but it's somewhere between 180 and 1300 light years, <laughs> which is just physical astronomy, isn't it? <laughs> of <Power laughs> magnitude. How can <laughs> they be so uncertain? Uh something to do with parallax being a pain. I think the current radio solution works out as something in the range of about 650 light years. But it seems there's a bit of uncertainty.
0: I'll have to check in with Ian after this, see if it's been covered in the Gaia data releases so far.
6: well uh, oh, actually, I am on Wikipedia right now. So far, for Gaia data release 2, there is no data on Beetlejuice. Oh, OK. So <laughs> it's a mystery. Watch this face. <laughs> I mean, uh, That's so, weird. Why would
3: it not be in the Gaia data set?
6: Well, it might just be that it hasn't been included in that particular data release. Yeah. It might be they're looking at different bits of the sky. Yeah, I Well, Gaia DR1 is whole sky.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah, it's whole sky in between DR1 and DR2, I think that's
6: like the majority of the
0: sources. They I probably have. just haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah,
6: maybe. A mm, lot of data, isn't there. Yeah. yeah,
0: with lots of fiendish systematics in there as well.
6: Ooh, Ooh. systematics. <laughs> We should get back to Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's
3: do that. Yes. It was dimming, it's now getting brighter again. It could have been a dust cloud, it could have been convection cells, or it could have been it's nearing the end of its life. It could be anything, really, we don't know. But we like thinking about these things yeah. We do
6: very much. And Beetlejuice is naturally variable anyway. Yeah. And so I think at least one possibility which seems to be favored by at least a couple in the astronomy community is that it was just coincidentally two separate of these cyclical processes that cause it to dim and brighten the minima occurred at the same time but i've also seen the theory that there was just a roaming dust cloud in that neck of the universe which just got in the way so it's still a little bit up in the air but it looks like currently it might just be going back to as it was Although, if you're the sort of person who appreciates regular graphs, and I know I am, uh, there is a lovely Twitter account called Beetlebot, B-E-T-E-L, bot, uh, which provides daily updates on what Beetlejuice's current magnitude is. It'll graph its progression since it started doing that dimming in uh, back in December, and it will also give you the most recent projection for what it's going to do next. So the most recent one, Uh, is showing it continuing to rise, probably back to about where it was originally, although obviously it's not going to be an instantaneous thing.
0: Is this a visual or a radio magnitude?
6: Uh, Oh, it's visual. Ah, okay. That brightness uh, is visual, Hmm. which I suppose makes sense. Beelgeuse, as far as I know, doesn't have a significant radio output, and while that would be great if it did, because that way we could have the radio isn't going to be affected if it's, say, a cloud of dust passing through, because the radio can go clean through that, yeah. whereas uh, your, your optical and your infrared are going to be affected by that. So, pity about that. The optical at least is one where we can actually very easily understand what we are going to see in the sky as a result.
0: Okay, can we head over to me now? I left. Yes, so I've got a couple of items this month. One is quite silly. The other one is extremely serious. Ooh,
4: interesting.
0: So we'll start off with the nice one first. One consequence of becoming a published astronomer is that you end up on various spam mailing lists for predatory (laughs) journals and conferences.
6: Oh, I've certainly heard other people in the department saying they've gotten sent some interesting things.
0: Yes. And I've had a couple of those interesting things recently, which have tickled me. So I'd like to share them with you now, if I may. Oh,
6: please do, please do. I've got a, a
0: screen cap here on on my laptop, which is just up to me right. And so I will read some excerpts of this email to you now. <laughs> Dear Dr. J.S. Morgan, I'm not yet, but thank you for believing in me. <laughs> Greetings. You are a pioneer with profound knowledge. And we feel the immense pleasure in inviting you to attend our conference name here, as a speaker, <laughs> which is in bold for some reason, which is going to be held at some point this year. So I'm not identify this too much. To discuss the wonders in this field and holds the theme of, well, it's a theme. You are an esteemed and remarkable person, well, oh, thank you very much,
3: <laughs> who
0: can significantly deliver the advancements and innovations in this field, which will ignite the ongoing and upcoming researchers pertaining to astrophysics and space research.
6: So they did actually twig what you work at. they it been so vague, I wondered if they were just yeah. sort of going, uh, <laughs> we'll really hedge our bets here. <laughs> yeah.
0: Please note, they say, I'm not going to ignite the discussion, I'm going to ignite the upcoming researchers.
2: <laughs> so they want me to come up here they want
0: me to come up here give a talk to an audience and then set fire to a bunch of us
6: you I mean that's not normal conference proceedings?
0: not the ones I've been to okay. maybe, I've
6: been, maybe I've
0: been going to the wrong conferences
6: mm-hmm. clearly these are the conferences where people have a lot more fun and or pain
0: yeah and or arson awesome.
6: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah Please note, I do not endorse setting researchers on fire. It's not a very nice thing to do.
6: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if they're really, really annoying, it's just it's just not worth it.
0: Yeah. It's more hassle than it's worth.
6: Yeah, not to mention that not all of them are necessarily all that flammable.
0: Mm. So yeah, that was fun. I, I've got a second one here as well. Oh, There's a wall. it's It's from the same person.
2: Oh boy.
0: Dear Dr. J.S. Morgan, again, not yet, but I'm getting there. (laughs) The bad book is coming along. (laughs) Hope this email finds you in best of health and spirit. With great pride and honour, we would like to invite you as a speaker at the conference name here, during date, at the place. So I can only assume that this has come from a a Klingon. A Klingon (laughs) conference organiser. And ah oh yeah, there's there's one there's one last gem in this one. Okay, they've tidied up their accents the last one, but they give a website to go to. Mhm. And the address they give is Palava International.
6: <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, it's us with a totally legitimate, not at all <laughs> fake conference. <laughs> at Palava International. Yeah.
0: <laughs> not to be confused with Carfuffle International, which is doing very well these days. Mm-hmm.
6: And <laughs> definitely not to be confused with Shenanigans Limited. <laughs> Good grief. I mean, I suppose this is the sort of thing which uh, you have to look forward to once your name is out there.
0: Mm. Well, it's the sort of thing that you will have to look forward to mm. in the coming months and years.
6: <laughs> I mean, that's putting a lot of space in my ability to ever get something published, but thank you.
0: You'll <laughs> be all right. I think you can do the thing.
6: Oh, that's very kind. Well, and I will have to believe in me because of that. <laughs> Given that, you know, apparently it tends to come with people preemptively awarding you your doctorate. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be something, at least. <laughs> That'll be motivational. Yeah. All right, so that was
0: the light stuff out of the way, but it that wasn't...
6: That wasn't the serious bit?
0: No. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be one of my appearances on the podcast if I didn't have a bit of a rant lined up. And this appearance is no exception. So, last month, we had on the news a brief item talking about planned satellite megaconstellations. Mm-hmm. And there have been a couple of papers out since then detailing the impact that those could possibly have on the night sky as seen from the ground, and the astronomical community's potential responses to that. So, the first paper I have here is published at the beginning of last month by a team of astronomers from Rome. And it's titled, Concerns about Ground-Based Astronomical Observations, A Step to Safeguard the Astronomical Sky. And in the first half of this paper, they basically go through and outline the scale of the problem that we're presented with. So, let's just go through this in turn. Yeah, so they first point out that even though we can do astronomy from space now, astronomy from the ground is still valuable and needs to be preserved because with ground-based telescopes they're orders of magnitude cheaper than space-based instruments. You can deploy novel technologies more easily. Ground-based solutions can be a lot bigger than space telescopes. I mean, imagine trying to get a level into space.
6: <laughs> Never mind the level, imagine like the square kilometre array. You mm. just could not get that going.
0: Yeah, you, you need a lot of Soyuz rockets.
6: Mm-hmm. There's, uh, that's the thing with these, of course, is that it costs. Of money to send things into
0: space. Yeah, space are expensive.
6: And fixing things when they're in space is also expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's a
0: big if. I'm assuming
6: you can do that. <laughs> in most cases, it. we can't. Yeah. I mean, even the likes of the Hubble. The Hubble, I believe, had some imperfection with one of its mirrors, mirrors when it was yes. sent up. Yeah. And that was an enormous pain to fix. Yeah.
0: Mm. But because it was in Earth orbit, we could send up a spaceman in a space van to fix it. <laughs>
6: That's a technical term, of course. Space man. Yeah. Space man. <laughs> Just call on the space plumber. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, they point out that ground-based astronomy is still valuable and will continue to be valuable for the foreseeable future. And so, it needs protection from these planned constellations. I'm not sure if it was covered last month as to how big these things will eventually
6: be. I'm willing to bet the answer is very.
0: Hmm. Well. I tell you what, would you like to give me a couple of ballpark numbers
5: Ooh.
6: as
0: to how many... This is just communication satellites that could potentially go up over the next few years.
6: Well, if I remember rightly, Starlink, the initial batch was sort of like a couple of dozen, I want to say.
0: Well, there's a couple of dozen up there already, I believe. Yes, that's there's it. There's 60 currently active.
6: Mm-hmm. And I believe Musk wanted to send up... In the end, over a thousand. Over a thousand. I was there were a few hundreds. Yeah. I don't know exactly how many it was off the top of my head, but I remember going, "Ooh, oh dear." Because when you consider the first batch is sixty, yeah, we are talking multiple hundreds minimum. How does fifty thousand sound? Ooh. <sighs> I don't do astronomy, which like which worries about. Uh, you know, things like the atmosphere or dust or things like that. So, you know I don't
3: <laughs> think though
6: hopefully these satellites would be minimal concern to my field and I'm still extremely worried.
0: So that's your field is radio astronomy, right? Yes. I have some bad news for you. Oh no. <laughs> so in the next section of the paper these astronomers outline one of the existing constellations, the Iridium constellation for satellite communication. I'm not sure if you've ever seen Iridium satellites. I'm not sure off the top of my head. They typically appear as a bright flash in the night sky for a few seconds and then fade away. Yeah, because I've, I've done some amateur optical astronomy in the past, so I've, I've seen a couple of these things. And I'm sure a, a lot of you listening along at home will be familiar with these. Iridium flashes, as they're called. And so they will... How many Iridium satellites? We have 66 listed here. Okay. And then they go on to talk about Starlink, which is definitely the mega constellation that these authors are most concerned about. So they lay out the details of how this is going to work. They have listed here 10,000 satellites in a high orbit, so that's at an altitude of 1150 kilometers. 6,000 at a medium altitude of 550 kilometers. And the remaining 26,000 satellites will be in the lowest shell at 340 kilometres.
3: Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear.
0: And then when you've got in other, either nation-states or private companies, looking to launch these things, there's one called UK1Web, which is in the process of launching as well. You've got companies like Amazon and Facebook, which have also floated interest in having constellations of these things up there for their own purposes. And that's how they then arrive at this ballpark figure of 50,000.
6: Yeah, at least seeing how things are going currently. If this looks like something which is going to be profitable to them, I imagine Mm. that that is not an outrageous number.
0: Unfortunately not, no. So, we might be looking at anywhere up to 50,000 of these new satellites. For comparison, there are 9,000 stars that are naked eye and we've got about 20,000 documented bits of debris and other bodies in orbit. So that's functioning and non-functioning.
6: Oh, good grief.
0: And we're looking at anything up to half a million other bits and pieces, not catalogued. Either because they're too small, they can't be traced properly, they're just flecks of paint and such.
6: Mm. Or I suppose they might be transients, like our our visiting moon.
0: Uh, I don't know, we're restricted to artificial
6: objects in this Mm -hmm. instance.
0: And so one of the big concerns that these authors have is the onset of Kessler syndrome in the Earth's so orbit. Have you two heard of
6: that? No. Is that essentially where you end up with just the entire uh, space around Earth just becomes a shell of metal effectively? There's so much debris and stuff there. Yes. That is the
0: end-case scenario that these authors are worried about.
6: I mean, with 50,000 potential communications satellites, I'm not surprised mm. at all.
0: Yeah. the co- Well, the potential for collision with not necessarily with each other because they will presumably know where the other satellites are in the rest of these constellations these active objects it's these undocumented inactive objects that will pose a threat in this instance and so what Kessler Syndrome describes is if you consider two bits of space debris they hit each other both fragment and create a shower of multiple other bits of debris which can then go on and interact with other bits of debris up there as so you then get this cascading effect.
6: Oh dear! Yeah, that that sounds like something we should all be very concerned about.
0: Mm. And so the ultimate concern is that ultimately Earth's orbit will become hazardous for further manned and unmanned launches, or at I least until something is done to clean it up.
6: Which of course would be hideously expensive and very difficult. Yes, mm.
0: we don't actually know how to do it yet
6: which is why I'd say a lot of the old space junk is left to its own devices when it's not, say, like a decommissioned satellite deliberately crashed into the ocean or something like that. Yeah, I can see why that's going to be very much of a concern. And you said there was a concern for radio as well, and I'm assuming that means we're expecting some emission which could start futzing up with all the radios. Yes,
0: because these satellites have to be able to talk to stations on the ground. So, Um, I have some radio bands here that will probably make more sense to you, Fiona, than me.
6: Well, we'll see. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so we've got the KA and KU bands and the radio V band. Okay. That are named as communications channels for these satellites.
6: Most of what I'm working with tends to be... Well, currently the data I'm working with is for neutral hydrogen emission, which does actually live in a protected band space. Yes. So no one on Earth is allowed to use uh, the same wave band as neutral hydrogen emits at because it's such a valuable astronomical tracer. But that's not the only region of interest for radio astronomy. (laughs) Not by far.
0: Yes, and they actually name a number of current and future radio astronomy missions that could be impacted by this. Any big names? We've got the Very Large Array, Uh, we've got the SKA, and we've uh, got ALMA.
6: Okay, Uh, yeah, Those are about as big as they get in radio astronomy and part of their mission really is to expand the number of frequencies that we can observe at because naturally we open up those new frequencies and might be able to see new things but it's going to be a bit tricky to do that if there's satellites uh, throwing out interference and just confusing the whole lot
0: Potentially contaminating more of the radio sky
6: Yep because when this happens in the optical, it's usually pretty obvious, I think. I think we've all probably seen uh, like an image from an optical observation with the trail of one of the uh, Starlink satellites ploughing clean through it. Yeah. So it looks like a little bright line. Yeah, I have encountered
0: satellite trails
6: mm-hmm. in
0: my work before.
6: Aye, and to a certain extent, given we've got satellites in orbit, they're unavoidable. The main issue with Starlink, I think, is going to be just the sheer scale of it. Yeah. Because currently you can plan your observations around them to a certain extent. Yeah. You know roughly where things are going to be and when. Yeah. So you can go, okay, well, this chunk of data is going to be useless. Or yeah. we'll need a lot of cleaning. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a very long train of satellites, that just means the amount of time you're not going to be able to do anything multiplies drastically. Yeah Mm. When it comes to the radio It gets better Oh boy
0: Starlink satellites Are planned to be On autonomous orbits So you can't predict Where they're going To go in advance
6: Oh great (laughs) Great 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 So Um. This sounds like It's going to be Very much not appreciated By more or less Of All of astronomy Well For professional astronomy Itself The picture
0: is Maybe not as bad As I had first feared Because there's been Another paper Mm Mm-hmm published today on the archive, which has been accepted for publication in... It is an ANA, Astronomy and Astrophysics. So we've got a pair of German astronomers associated with the European Southern Observatory who have run the numbers for this. Okay. They are are assuming a communication satellite population of 26,000...
6: Okay, so about half of our predicted...
0: Yes, but still an appreciably big number.
6: Definitely. Spaced
0: at their various shells in Earth's orbit. And they'll be looking at how they're spaced, at what time of night that they're going to be visible, how they will emit in visual and infrared. And they try to estimate the percentages of exposures that might be damaged for various observing modes from the effects of these mega constellations. And in a lot of cases, the numbers are actually pretty small. Yeah. So if you're doing just basic optical imaging with a small to medium telescope, as long as you're at night, well, past astronomical twilight, I should say, when the sun is more than 18 degrees below the horizon, you're probably going to be okay. The number of exposures that will be lost will be pretty negligible.
6: Do you have something like a percentage or anything like that?
0: Uh, Well, they quote, 0% Zero percent here. Oh, okay. So small, as to be minimal.
3: Fair enough. then. Which, uh, what, what observing band is that? Because I imagine the radio frequency. It doesn't matter it if it's.
0: Yes, right. these authors only look at optical and infrared observing. Okay. They say that there's going to be a separate analysis for radio published yeah. in a subsequent paper.
6: Well, radio doesn't work quite. The same. I don't know about infrared, but optical. You know, if there's a trail passing through, you can see it. Yeah. yeah. Radio, you're just going to get a big form of interference. Yeah,
0: it'll be a spike of RFI.
6: Yeah, exactly. Mm.
0: So, spectroscopic observations, well, long and short from the ground, might be, they stand to be a bit more affected. Maybe 1% of exposures being lost. Okay. But where this is really going to hurt optical astronomy from the ground is in wide field imaging, these wide surveys.
6: Oh, I can bet. And
0: things like the large synoptic survey telescope, recently represented as the Viva Rubin Space Telescope, Mm -hmm. which is currently under construction in Chile. It's set to be able to image the entirety of the night sky every three days with very wide exposures, and we're looking at losses of anything up to 50% for that.
6: (sighs) I mean, it's unsurprising given that method of observing. If you're ending up having to do long exposures of large areas, then naturally anything is moving through those is going to contaminate, and the more things that move through while that observation is happening, the worse it's going to get.
0: Yes. So the take-home message from this is really that narrow, focused observations will probably only have a minimal impact on them, but those are being increasingly guided by these all-sky surveys. Mm -hmm. Which will still be important from the ground. I mean, not only for guiding our telescopes, but also for spotting near-Earth objects
6: Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm.
0: our recent visitor.
6: Yeah, exactly. And there are certainly a lot of fields which do rely on these wide-field observations to get them started. For example, I believe there's certainly some where they, for example, need to localise transients. They need to rely on a wide-field of some kind catching the object, so they've got enough time to then direct uh, some more precision instruments onto it to get some more data.
0: So we don't have any real solutions at this point, but we do have a better idea of the nature of the problem that we are faced with.
6: Which is good in itself. It's not good that it's something we have to figure out how to deal with, but (laughs) it's good to know what we're up against. Yeah. Well, you say that, going back to this first
0: paper... I've mentioned here by this Italian team one more extreme recourse that they mentioned possibly taking is to argue that astronomy should be protected under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and mm. UNESCO efforts in that respect stating that humans should have the right to enjoy an unblemished night sky for want of a better phrase but keeping it visible and beautiful for future generations
6: I mean, I could definitely see the argument there. I mean, if anything counts as a world heritage site, it's the (laughs) sky. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, in that more poetic aspect, astronomy is a shared heritage. So one possible recourse that they then have is to take action against nation-states through the international court of justice.
6: Hmm. How would that work for the likes of private entities, then?
0: Ah. So, yeah. So this would fall under UNESCO's remit. It's Astronomy and World Heritage Project. So this was a bit of text in 2005. The Enforcement of the Right to Starlight, which I may as well just read to you in full. International law enforces international legal obligations, including property interests. Here, world heritage is the property of all humankind. And while there may be protective laws, enforcing this is another matter, as only states can sue other states under this type of international treaty. A state is responsible for the activities that occur within its jurisdiction, whether they are authorised or unauthorised. So, private contractors then undertaking work from a state soil could potentially then open up that state to legal action. Right, okay. But of course, that has never been tested mm. in this way at this point.
6: There's always a first. And I mean, if you had to pick something to use in protection of something like this, don't really get any bigger than the sky (laughs) yeah i
0: guess i guess it harks back to one of the previous odds and ends that i did with regards to exploitation of mineral resources on the moon Ah,
6: i believe i was also Uh, there for that one
0: yeah because that's another area where well not even international law applies it goes beyond international law it's it's another body
6: yeah if i remember rightly there There's some restriction set up so that no one can own things in space. Yeah, so that would be
0: the Outer Space Treaty of 1967.
6: Mm, Which uh, would have happened while the space race was still...
0: Was very much on
6: Very much <laughs> yeah. on So naturally Both sides of that Wanted to make sure The other couldn't Land on the moon And then go It's ours now Yeah mm. Well
0: one of the other Major concerns at that time Was that people Would trying to station Nuclear weapons in space Which
6: would be Because
0: that was only Five years after The Cuban missile crisis
6: mm-hmm. And I suppose it would have been Very very tempting To have uh, Somewhere to stockpile things Which is I mean You're going to notice If anyone approaches The moon <laughs> Yeah <laughs> Mm. So it would be quite interesting if they come up with a similar sort of thing for the sky In that no corporation, no government can affect it that strongly But I don't know quite how you enforce it Without taking
0: reasonable mitigating action Mm.
6: Mm. Because that has been one of the concerns Whether or not there has been enough of that mitigating action Particularly Mm. in the case of uh, Starlink Which again I believe you've discussed previously Jake in that when they were, when the first bats were launched, there was, there were no measures taken to try and reduce how reflective they were. No. Mm. Which I think they've since been, they've trialed out painting some of them darker.
0: Yes, so there is a dark sat up there.
6: Ooh. Currently. <laughs>
0: I'm not <laughs> privy <pretty close> as <laughs> to how results from that have gone, whether the reflecting has worked, but then that would presumably make it brighter in the infrared, if it's then absorbing light oh, that on yeah. it. You
6: would expect, yep. Yeah, one of those ones where I don't think there really is that easy a solution.
0: Yeah, there's certainly no easy solution to this. But this team is certainly seems to be of the opinion that this thing shouldn't just be stopped, that it has to be made to be stopped.
6: Well, I think a lot of us in astronomy would be very much in favour of that. Not to be all technology is bad, fire is scary, Thomas Edison was a witch. <laughs> but <laughs> With some kinds of technology, you do have to be to be careful that you're not messing things up long term. And this does sound like it's one which very yeah. much
0: could. That is the concern. One thing that we haven't talked about so far is what happens to these satellites after they've reached the end of their usable life.
6: Well, as I mentioned previously, the aim for some satellites that are coming near the end of their life is to just crash them into the ocean yeah. somewhere.
0: If they can be deorbited sensibly, then that should take care of itself. Mm
6: -hmm. It's just, if these are already going to be wandering around sort of semi-autonomously
0: in an already crowded environment,
6: then trying to coordinate that could be very difficult. Not to mention what happens, I was thinking, if they somehow manage to lose contact with each other. Yeah. Like, let's say the scenario happens where we get hit by a solar flare. Yeah. Which, depending on how the magnetic field is doing, would have different impacts. If the magnetic field is still up uh, and strong and all that then we're mostly worrying about the furthest satellites out. They could potentially get knocked out. If the magnetic field is in some flux, then the effects are going to come in a lot closer to Earth's orbit. I did a bit of study a while ago about uh, what would happen to the Earth during a magnetic field reversal, because the Earth's magnetic field does periodically reverse and again, we're about to do one but it's due as in probably sometime within the next couple of thousand of years. And the main conclusion I came to was that the impacts on people, humans existing, would be minimal. The impacts on electronics would be bad. It's something where if you are prepared for it, you can work around it to an extent. But last time we were hit by a major flare that I recall was sometime... I believe in the 1800s, one got one hit in Canada. Uh, that, I think that was the 90s. Wasn't this particular...
0: The 1990s. Yeah. I don't,
6: no, 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 not this one, definitely, because one of the things which they observed was to do with telegrams,
1: unless oh, okay. those are still
6: running in Canada in the 90s. So I think that was maybe the most recent one, but it was a previous one sometime in the mid-1800s. Uh, and one of the things they spotted was that uh, they could send telegrams without any electricity connected up. and nice. that Well, you say that, but the, the control boards were randomly shocking uh, the people who were working there. Again, without any power attached to them, just from the interaction with all the solar particles yeah. and the cosmic rays and the like.
0: That's an occupational hazard.
6: <laughs> <laughs> so that was as I said sometime in the 1800s when mm. the world was considerably less reliant on electronics than it was nowadays that would be something and it would affect things most strongly the further up in the atmosphere they are because the earth's atmosphere is something of a protective layer when it comes to cosmic ray flux Yeah, magnetic field is the primary defence but the atmosphere does a lot for it so if that's the case if we got magnetic field is fluctuating a bit closer to the Earth, we get hit by a good-sized solar flare, that is going to play merry havoc with satellites. And if we've got all these autonomous ones wandering around, which are all talking to each other oh, until they so. suddenly aren't, yeah. <laughs> that could be messy. Yeah. Again, it's not something which would probably be especially dangerous for people on Earth, unless you're very, very unlucky, it's very much something which should be considered, because we can't control what the sun is doing. No. And it could absolutely do that. It's not likely to, but it very much may yeah. happen.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a low-risk, high-impact scenario.
6: Exactly. So I guess
0: I can conclude this by saying that the authors are calling for legal protection, of ground-based astronomical facilities. They want measures put in place to be able to protect these facilities from any future impacts that these things have.
6: Hopefully not literal.
0: Yeah, yeah, hopefully not literal. (laughs) (laughs) They're not opposed to the concept in itself, but the key is, can it be done sustainably? Mm. Can these competing interests be balanced?
6: And, I mean, you really hope we'll be able to figure it out.
0: We live in hope. And we head now to a man who has probably seen more than a few satellites in the night sky in his time. Here's Professor Ian Morrison with this
7: month's Night Sky. The night sky for March 2020. As darkness falls, that lovely region of the heavens containing the constellations of Orion, Taurus, Canis Major is setting towards the western horizon. Up to the left of Orion are the two bright stars, Castor and Pollux, the heads of the twins in Gemini. Moving over a little bit to the east, there's a fairly blank region of the sky, but if you look hard, it's actually the constellation of Cancer, and there is a very nice open cluster called the Beehive Cluster, or Prisope. And then a bit further towards the east, Leo is now fairly high in the southeastern sky with its bright star Regulus. Above Leo, moving towards and beyond the zenith, you find the plough, which of course is part of Ursa Major. And if you follow the line of the handle of the plough, and remember there's a very nice double star, the middle of the three stars of the handle, Alcor and Mizar, you can see it with binoculars quite easily. You keep on going down and you come to a bright star rising in the east which is called Arcturus part of the constellation of Bootes. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter. As March begins Jupiter rises more than 90 minutes before the sun shining at magnitude minus 2. It then follows Mars and precedes Saturn into the pre-dawn sky all rising within the space of an hour. During the month, it brightens to magnitude minus 2.1, whilst its angular size increases from 34.2 to 36.9 arc seconds. A fairly low southeastern horizon will be needed, and our views of this giant planet will be hindered, sadly, by the depth of the atmosphere through which it will be observed. Well, Saturn is also visible in the pre-dawn sky. It rises at about 0533, half an hour after Jupiter, and by its end at 0442. The magnitude remains at about plus 0.7, whilst the angular size increases slightly, from 15.5 to 16.1 arc seconds. Again, its low elevation will limit our views of this most beautiful planet. Now Mercury is actually lost this month in the sun's glare, so we can't really see it. However, Mars is one of the three planets brightening up the pre-dawn sky. It rises at about 4.30am, and perhaps we've best seen about 6am, having an elevation of about 8 degrees, as it's moved a little bit more round to the south. It will have a magnitude of plus 1.1 and a 5.5 arcsecond 2nd salmon pink disc and lies just to the left of the lid of the teapot in Sagittarius. Moving eastwards, by month's end, it will have just moved into Capricornus, and will be seen further round towards the south before dawn, when its magnitude will have increased slightly to plus 0.8. Its angular size will have increased to 6.4 arcseconds, but really no markings could be seen with a small telescope. As it moves eastwards during the month with respect to Jupiter and Saturn, it passes below Jupiter on the 21st of the month and Saturn as April begins. Venus is now dominating the southwestern twilight sky and appears higher each night until the 24th when it reaches greatest elongation east from the Sun and will then have an elevation at sunset of about 40 degrees about the highest elevation it can ever achieve. It is a wonderful sight in the sky after sunset at the present time. During the month, its angular size increases from 18.8 to 25.2 arc seconds. But, at the same time, its phase, which is the percentage of the disk illuminated, decreases from 63% to 48%. And so the brightness only increases slightly, from about minus 4.3 to minus 4.5 magnitudes. That's actually about as bright as it ever gets. It really is a lovely thing to see in the evening sky. Well, what about the highlights? Not really that many, but as I go through using Stellarium to find out when things get interesting, I looked for Uranus and discovered in the first week and a bit of the month it's actually quite close to Venus. So there's a nice way of finding it. So on the night sky page, just search for night sky Jodrell, I've produced a chart which shows where Venus is during the 1st to the 7th of the month, and also Uranus, which actually moves very slightly. Uranus is forming initially a a wonderful propeller with uh, three other stars. So I think it should be quite easy to spot with binoculars. It has a magnitude of of 5.8 So do have a try. And in fact, um, and even in the second week of March, Venus is still quite close by, but slightly higher up. And again, you could use a program like Stellarium to find out its relative position compared to Uranus. So do try and have a look. With binoculars on a dark, clear night, there should be no problem in spotting it, perhaps looking slightly turquoise in colour. On March the 8th, in the late evening, the near full moon lies just below Leo. On the 18th of the month, before dawn, there are three planets and a waning crescent moon visible. So if it's clear, before dawn on the 18th, looking towards the southeast, one should see a waning crescent moon down to the right of Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. That should be very nice. On the nights of March the 28th and 29th in the early evening, Venus and a thin crescent moon will be seen close to the Hyades and Pleiades cluster. So, on the 28th, Venus will be seen to the upper right of a very thin crescent moon, with both lying below the Hyades and Pleiades clusters. On the following night, the crescent moon, somewhat larger now, will lie to the upper right of the Hyades cluster. That should make a very nice photo, either of those nights. I'm certainly going to try and have a go. On March the 31st, before dawn, there's a nice grouping of Saturn, Jupiter and Mars. So again, if it's clear, do try and have a look. I usually mention something on the Moon's surface. I I once, a long time ago, did my PhD on the Moon. It's quite hard getting there every day. But uh, I do like observing and imaging the Moon. So best seen around third quarter, is that rather lovely region of the moon's surface at the northern end of Oceanus Procularum. Best seen close to third quarter, Mons Piton is an isolated lunar mountain located in the eastern part of Mare Imbrium, southeast of the crater Plato and west of the crater Cassini. Mons Piton has a diameter of 25 kilometers and a height of 2.3 kilometers. Its height was initially determined by the length of the shadow it casts. Now Cassini is a 57 km wide crater which has been flooded with lava. The floor has been impacted many times and holds within its borders two significant craters, Cassini A and Cassini B. Finally north of Mons Piton can be seen a rift through the Alpine Mountains around 166 kilometres long, it has a very thin rill along its centre. It's very hard to see, and I've never seen it, but I have been able to image it, and the image which shows it is in the lunar section of the night sky page under the section 8 day moon, which is the best image of the moon I've ever managed to take. So I do hope you enjoy observing the heavens this month.
3: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogosanu and Samuel Lesky with the night sky where you are.
8: Kiara from New Zealand. Hello everyone. I'm Haritina Mogosano.
1: And I'm Samuel Leski.
8: And we have again some instructions for you as to what to do with the March night sky.
1: Did you know that Venus is in the night sky at this time of the year? But if you're a morning owl, you can also see Mars, Jupiter and Saturn in the morning sky. They're joined by Mercury later in the month.
8: Great objects to look at are the stars between Orion and Saturn Cross.
1: Around 8 to 9pm, Sirius and Canopus reach the meridian almost at the same time, and they are quite a sight. Sirius is north of the meridian and Canopus is to the south. They are followed closely by the Milky Way. that now looks like an octopus leg arching across the sky from behind the horizon and reaching the zenith about 10pm. Scorpius is not yet visible unless you wait until the early hours of the morning. The equinox falls on a Friday, Friday the 20th of March, just as people finish work, at around 4.49pm, just in time for the weekend.
8: The Pleiades, that's the famous dark cluster whose heliacal rising marks the Maori New Year in New Zealand, is now called Tetafiti and is part of the grand asterism of the Birdcatcher, preparing to disappear behind the sun for the next two months.
1: The Magellanic Clouds, our neighbouring galaxies, are in a good position to observe. And in all this beautiful sky are some amazing deep sky objects to see. Here is what you need to do.
8: Look for Venus just after sunset on the western horizon. It will be high and bright in the sky, visible with the naked eye, binoculars and through the telescopes. Next visible after Venus will be the three brightest stars in the sky, Sirius. Look up to see it, it's a bit north of overhead, so it's the dog star. And then look for Canopus, a bit south of overhead, and that's what we call here the cat star. Then turn south, there you will see Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star in the sky.
1: As the Sun goes down, other bright stars appear. The easiest to spot are the stars of Orion. Betelgeuse and Rigel are the first to appear, Turn northwest to see them. The stars from Orion's belt are about 20 degrees west from Sirius. You can measure that with your hands. Stretch your arm out in that direction. The distance from your pinky to your thumb, if you stretch these two, is about 20 degrees. From Orion's belt, keep going another 20 degrees west. This is where Aldebaran and the Hades are. Another fist west and you will have found the Pleiades. They are now very close to the horizon.
8: Other bright stars appear a bit later. You can now see the stars of Canis Major, Canis Minor, and the crosses in Vela and Carina, the False Cross and the Diamond Cross, and of course the Southern Cross asterism in the Southern Cross constellation, the smallest of the 88 constellations in the sky. The Southern Cross is almost at the 9 o'clock position in the night sky. From New Zealand, it is a circumpolar asterism constellation as it rotates through the night around the South Celestial Pole. This is the extension of the
1: South Pole in the sky. By this time, it would be dark enough to start seeing the patches of stars that make up the Milky Way. And that should happen around 9pm. Mid-month, by 9.30, is officially night. You should easily be able to see the Milky Way.
8: Some of our favorite deep sky objects that we're looking at this time of the year are on the ecliptic, first starting with Taurus, we have all these but goldies, let's call them the beginner object, and 45 in Pleiades. In binoculars is a lovely star cluster, we tried to look at it with the telescope, it didn't work that well. On the other side of the sky, in Carina, the sun Pleiades,
1: it's the twin of the Pleiades. In Gemini we see the two brightest stars, Castor from New Zealand, this is closest to the horizon, and Pollux. The constellation has also a neutron star, and a few deep sky objects, the open cluster M35, the Eskimo Nebula, the Jellyfish Nebula, and Medusa Nebula.
8: Castor and Pollux have been associated in antiquity with the appearance of St.
1: Elmo's Fires. M44, the Beehive Cluster, this is a good object for binoculars, And not so great on telescopes because it's so big. On the opposite part of the sky, we will look at the southern beehive.
8: In LEO, we have the LEO triplet M66, M65 and NGC 3628. These are galaxies. There's also a star, Wolf 359, which is one of the nearest stars to Earth at 7.8 light years distance from us. And it's a red dwarf of magnitude 13.5, so it probably would be very hard to see in any telescopes. But Wolf 359, it's the solar system where the forces of the United Federation of Planets and the Bohr Collective had the most destructive battle in the history of the Federation in
1: 2367. So we thought we'd mention it here. (laughs) Other Messia objects in Leo are M95, M96 in M105, fabulous galaxies to look at. Moving along the Milky Way, M42 in Orion, great object no matter when, one of the first deep sky objects to be visible just after sunset. In Canis Major is M41, just underneath the big dog. And Puppis, M46 is a beautiful open cluster that has a planetary nebula in the middle of it. And M68, a beautiful globular cluster in Hydra.
8: And then all the beautiful objects of Vela and Carina and Centaurus and everything else on the South celestial region. So we've been doing a lot of observing in March and we have quite a long list, but here are some of the objects that we looked at, especially the ones in, in the last couple of weeks.
1: We observed Omega Centauri, the largest globular cluster in the night sky in Centaurus also ngc 4976 an elliptical galaxy just below in lupus we looked at a planetary nebula the tiny little ic 4406 only the big telescope for that one then we saw ngc 5460 a, an open cluster in centaurus and then ngc 5286 a globular cluster also in centaurus it's quite a big one that one the beautiful ngc 3918 the blue planetary nebula and then, gorgeous. It is gorgeous. It's a lovely colour to really see that blue. And then in Carina, NGC 3532, an open cluster. And, of course, the Jewel box cluster, NGC 4755, just outside of the Southern Cross. And then we've got the gem cluster, NGC 3293, which is a lovely open cluster, not far from Eticaurina Nebula. And, of course, we've got Eticaurina Nebula. Uh, we have Alpha Centauri the beautiful double star, and one of our closest neighbours, of course. And then we've got NGC 3114, a lovely open cluster in Carina. NGC 2867, a tiny little planetary nebula in Carina. NGC 4833, a pretty dim but very large globular cluster in Musca. We have another tiny little planetary nebula in Carina called Ray 16-41, you'll (laughs) really have to work hard to find that one. And NGC 4372 is the other globular cluster in Musca, which is quite a bit harder to see, it has a very low surface brightness. NGC 2.019 is a globular cluster in Mensa, and another one, NGC 2100, is a globular cluster in Dorado. Now these are all nicely positioned in the Large Magellanic Cloud, and as you browse... Around the Large Magellanic Cloud, starting with the Tarantula Nebula, which is NGC 2070, you will see a ton of other clusters and globular clusters and nebula, including NGC 2109, 2096, 2098, 1910, 1917, 1856, 1858, 1855, And 1850 and a whole lot more. Take your time and have a good look around.
8: And of course, these are objects that we've been looking at in in the last couple of weeks with our telescope. What kind of telescope do we have?
1: We've got a 16-inch reflector and an 8-inch reflector.
8: So you can see all these in such telescopes?
1: Easily. Especially, well, you really need the 16-inch for a lot of the ones that we've mentioned today.
8: But it was quite a lot of fun.
1: It was, yeah.
8: So we hope you have a clear sky for March and from here from New Zealand. Sam is key. And Haritina Mogoshano, wish you...
1: All the best, thanks. Peace, guys.
6: Thanks for that, Haritina and Sam. And now, on to the feedback. So, this month, we got an email in to our mailbox here of Sean Lynch, who is wanting to say, My son Charlie and several other undergrads at New Mexico Tech are getting the student observatories back in working order. Last night, they got the 14-inch telescope in the 10-foot dome working, although the shutter doors are still sticking. They hope to restart outreach programs with the community. And he's included a photo, which I assume is of the facilities. So we've certainly got some lovely telescope domes there. Tastefully lit in red light.
0: Ooh, very nice. Very swish. Yeah.
6: At least they had a dome.
0: I didn't get a dome when I was an undergrad.
3: <laughs> well,
0: the telescope had a dome, but it was—it certainly wasn't a dome that you could walk around in. <laughs> yeah, well, best of luck to you, and I hope New Mexico is warmer than Brighton.
6: And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
0: Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast.
6: Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast.
0: Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jobcast.
6: And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the
0: website. Thanks to Rebecca Bowler for the interview. Your editors this month were Lizzie Lee, Joe Winnicki, Haratina Mogashanu, Michael Wright and Tom Scrag. And the producer was Michael Wright. Until next time,
3: John on! on.